Welcome to the Mr. TV Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking with one of the co-creators of Stickin' Around, Robin Steele. We talk about how the show got its aesthetic, working with the show's cast, and what it takes to reboot a show. So sit back and enjoy. Robin Steele, welcome to the Mr. TV Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Today we're talking about sticking around, but for listeners who may have missed out on the show, what was the show all about? What we finally boiled the, the pitch t- down to and the log line for the show that, that basically sold the show was what would happen if kids could create their own cartoon show? And there, there's a lot of backstory to that, but the idea that Bradley and Stacy basically create the show as they go along just allowed for a, a tremendous freedom of um, just creative impulse. You know, it's like that eight-year-old mindset where you can do a 90-degree turn at 180 miles an hour and it still works was, was just such a luxury. It was, it, was, it was such an amazing environment to, to, to build the show in. And that's basically as boiled down as it gets, is that, is that they created the show as they go along. My, my ethos through all the creative process from um, the art style to the music, to the sound effects, to the editing and everything else was very much held to that light, which was if it doesn't look or sound or feel like an eight-year-old could have created it, then it, it's off model. It doesn't belong in the show. And uh, how did you get involved in the show? (laughs) Okay, so I had done stick figure theater for MTV's Liquid Television at Colossal Pictures in San Francisco. This is Liquid Television. I know you're going to dig this. After that was well well done and over, I got a call from Brian Leary, who had been developing a show uh, with Barbara Corday, who created Cagney and Lacey and was, had been president of Columbia Pictures and such. And they were working on a show about divorce for prime time. And Brian had seen Stick Figure Theater and, and tracked me down and told me about this idea. And they said that they were looking for interstitials, animated interstitials that, that somehow stick stick figure theater had spoken to and and she and i talked and and said well what if the stick figures emerge from stacy's we 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 hadn't quite quite created the sticklers or stacy or anything at that point but what if they emerged out of a child's art therapy around divorce right and um, that show never happened. Um, but Breen and I kept talking and thought, you know, well, what, what could we do with this? And, you know, eventually, probably a year later, um, Sticking Around was born. Uh, um, you had mentioned earlier that uh, Brian had kind of tracked you down. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, I mean, you know, no, no, nothing, nothing nefarious. It was, okay. just, it was you know, the, our, our first contact was that, you know, she had, she had, you know, done her homework and done her research and, you know, figured out where I was and, and got a hold of me. That's all I mean by that. Okay. I kind of, <laughs> I, I kind of picture someone like sort of driving around slowly in neighborhoods and trying to like find out where you were or something. <laughs> so. 
Well, actually, by that time, I was living, I was living um, about an hour south of Yosemite out in the Sierra Nevada. So, <laughs> oh, okay. so pretty, there, pretty far there out there. Gotcha. Um, so, I mean, a lot of the questions that I'm asking uh, during this interview are kind of based around a Chicago Tribune article from 1994. And, and as you mentioned, it, it kind of paints a, a bit of a different picture of the show uh, from the original idea uh, compared to what we actually got at the end. Um, so, I mean, how did the series, you know, sort of transform over time from that original, you know, one minute interstitials to the show that we got? Well, I mean, it was all of the same cloth. Um, it was just that for the first, that first season of interstitials, um, Judy Price at CBS mm -hmm. um, didn't have, didn't have room for the, the full series in her, in her Saturday morning schedule. Although what was, what was really remarkable about the, about talking to Judy and pitching the show to Judy was it really, it's, it's the only time I have ever actually heard of a show being bought by a network at the pitch. Right. Uh, we had, Brian and I had done a little like 20 second animated intro, basically a little, a little demo. It was, it was almost like a Simpsons couch gag. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it was with the, the cast of sticking around and we put it in the, the, the VHS player at that point. <laughs> and uh, Judy said, this I want. And like I said, it's, it's the only time I've ever actually heard of that happening at a pitch meeting. Um, and so, you know, and we had fleshed out, the by that time, of course, we had a show Bible, we, you know, we were ready to go and we had full episode ideas fleshed out and, and ready to go. And so then, it was kind of the reverse of it evolving out of the interstitials because we had to take those full episode ideas, you know, which were generally 11 minute concepts and cram them into one minute interstitials and make them work in really, really short form. And that was a challenge in and of itself. But I think what it did was really made us um, focus the show and get rid of anything that anything that was dead wheat, dead weight or dead wood and really really put a put a, a fine point on it mm -hmm. oddly enough because you know it look it looks so completely crazy and insane but there is there is a real method to it believe it or not so what was that method how did you guys turn those sort of larger episodes to the smaller vignettes what was your sort of technique around that well I mean, Brian and I worked together really amazingly well, and and you know we 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 had a, a very open, a very open communication, and could could um, safely bounce ideas and counter ideas and edits mm -hmm. off of each other, and you know we really like I said it really was a matter of you know cutting out anything that didn't belong and getting really getting down to um, the core of an episode. Um, which is interesting because it it has to do with the art style itself in a way. Like when we were doing stick figure theater at Colossal Pictures mm -hmm. for MTV, what we realized was how much you can do with a stick figure. You know, stripping away all the bells and whistles and 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 art direction and everything else that normally goes into animation. How elemental you could make storytelling and acting for that matter. You know, it was, it was amazing what you could do with, you know, a circle, two dots and a line. <laughs> and 
you know, you can have Alfred Hitchcock doing it. You can have John Wayne doing it. You can have Betty Davis doing it. And it reads. And, and it, was, it was really a matter of, uh, it was really kind of surprising how much you could coax out of a really, really simple stick figure. And I think that part, that, that's part of the answer to how did we boil down full episode ideas into, into one minute interstitials. It was kind of the same process. You know, it's like, well, what, what do we really need here to put this idea across? A lot of those ideas, of course, got fleshed back out into um, full episodes when the show went, when the show went, went uh, to series. For listeners at home too, um, and you mentioned stick figure theater twice now. Um, what was that show? In the early 1990s, um, MTV had a show called Liquid Television, which was a compendium of bizarre, off-the-wall, um, unpredictable animation, out of which came both uh, Eon Flux and Beavis and Butthead, by the way. Oh, okay. And um, it, was, it ran for three seasons, and one of the ideas, and one, one of the, 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 the mandates as we were creating ideas was that there was basically no money to make the show. <laughs> and so I thought, well, let's just, let's just do stick figures on note cards. And so what we did, and, and, not only, and, and to the issue of money, we actually had to only use public domain material. Right. Which, you know, there were some, some surprises. Like, It's a Wonderful Life's copyright had lapsed. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Night of the Living Dead had never been copyrighted. And so there were a few gems in the, in, in the, in the woodpile that we did, again, one minute, one minute lifts of audio and animated them with stick figures. And uh, it, you know, it, it proved one of the more popular uh segments of liquid television and uh here we are i've never seen these before what were they doing in your office safe do i know you this is dr sanchez he nursed me back from the accident and he'll be sitting right beside me in court when the judge reads your sentence this is absurd you had mentioned earlier that you had worked with a woman named judy price who was a pretty high up executive at cbs i mean one question is is you know what was it like working with her and you know, we've talked to some creators before about working with a broadcaster or working with a censor and sort of the changes that they bring to a series. Um, what was it like working with her and did she bring any changes to the series that you weren't anticipating? The one, the one big change that happened right away um, was that we couldn't have a girl alone as the protagonist of the show. Mm. It was owing to the, you know, the marketing edict that, and, and, and it, it, it still breaks my heart because I think it's still true to some degree, though I think there have been some real breakthroughs lately that, that, that counter it, especially, you know, with some of the Disney movies with, you know, like, like Tangled and, and, and uh, everything, that girls will watch anything, but boys won't watch a show with a girl protagonist. And there, there was, I mean, the Wall Street Journal had demographic research. I remember a big article right around the time we were making the show, the Wall Street Journal actually came out with, a, with an article about that, the demographic difference. And so we added Bradley to the show, which I think, you know, ended up being a, a, a real plus, you know, plus <laughs> Brian and I are pretty much Stacy and Bradley anyway. So when, when we <laughs> go into episode pitch meetings, it was pretty easy to, pretty easy to, to, to convince Judy that we were on the right track. 
Um, but other than that, Judy was was a, a real fan of the show, which which was a real blessing because we had heard um, that she could be difficult and pretty ex pretty extremely difficult at the time, and and she'd earned it. I mean, she was like the last great children's network executive, in my opinion. Uh, you know, she. She put all kinds of stuff on the air, including Pee Wee's Playhouse and, and you know, I mean, you name it. She was she was the right kind of risk taker in network children's programming. You know, she didn't she didn't have the elbow room of Cartoon Network or even Nickelodeon or whatever, you know, and, and mm -hmm. I mean, she, she had some she had some some, you know, high powered uh, voices to answer to. And you know, she knew her stuff. She really knew her stuff. And, and she, she loved the show. We never had any, any, any uh, objection or difficulty with Judy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's so interesting to hear, though, that, you know, Bradley wasn't originally part of the sort of the, the original pitch of the show, though. Right, right. Yeah. And then there was the day when, when we, were, we were well into the interstitials and, and Judy said, I think I think she she'd probably like you know finally seen an episode or something and and she <laughs> a meeting with Judy where she said, "Is Bradley black?" <laughs> and we're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess some something that's funny about that though is that I I mean I I'd watched uh, a bunch of you know kids show at the time I'm I'm born 1991 so I was deep into watching TV by the time sticking around was on TV. But I remember watching some shows like um, uh, Doug, for instance. Uh -huh. And in Doug, there's a character named Skeeter, who's clearly supposed to be a black person. Um, and yet his skin is green. And that's something that's seen in a lot of kids shows where there is a character who is supposed to be black. And I'm also thinking of another example of a show called Reboot, where the main character, Bob, is a, is a, is a blue man who has dreads and he's also voiced by a black man, yet he's blue. I, I was always, I, I will say, you know, no offense to, no offense to the creators, but I was always a little weirded out by that with Doug. It's like, you know, the, the, the sort of evasion of ethnicity or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. um, all we tried to do, all we tried to do with Bradley was be honest, you know, and, and give him honest reactions and, just one of the kids. Yeah, I, I mean, I think he's a great character. Like, I think he's he, aside from one other one other character that we'll get into a bit later. I think he's probably my my second favorite character in the show. We're getting close to the secret potion now. How can you tell? Because you're about to encounter. Don't say it, Bradley. Alien from Uranus. Um, before we get into a, a bit more detail on the characters and, and the casting of the series, one thing I want to ask you about was the show's theme song because I think it's a, a really uh, beautiful, short uh, intro. Uh, who was behind the writing on that? John Tucker. So the, all of the music for the show yeah. was created by John Tucker, who is an absolute genius. I believe he's teaching experimental composition um, at a university in Vancouver now. And cool. Yeah, and and the thing about John, I had the weirdest mandate he probably or any composer for a show has ever has ever probably had, which was that all of the music, authentically, not synthesized or sampled or anything else, all of the music had to be played 
on stuff that could be found in Stacy's room. Oh, okay. And he came up with some of the most ingenious stuff. I mean, we, we allowed, we allowed one of those little, one of those little, you know, 10 key pianos, okay. little, little tiny, tiny piano, which you hear in the, in the intro, obviously. Yep. Um, and he did such amazing stuff. It was like, and, and you can hear the intro too, which is when we would get to sound effects sessions, Mm -hmm. um, on finished episodes and, and start, you know, dropping in sound effects and everything, we realized we hardly needed any because John had so ingeniously woven hits and knocks and, and squeaks and squeals and everything into the music itself that it was always just, I mean, my, I'm, my spine is tingling now just remembering it, you know, just mm. remembering what, what he was able to do. We gotta gas up. Six, five, four, three, two, one. And the other thing about John that was really cool was, was I mean, our communication was extraordinary. I mean, I could, I could be hearing a passage that he'd written for, for a scene or, a, or, or whatever, and I could be as abstract as saying, you know, that that section there just needs to be a little more green, mm -hmm. and he would fix it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was that kind of a that kind of an almost almost telepathic relationship, you know. And yeah. I, I am indebted to him for for the sound of that show uh, forever. And I mean, one one sound I, I t totally remember is I believe it's the theme that always plays when Polly shows up. Uh, it's sort of like da 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 da. It's <laughs> such a, it's such a, a characteristic thing for her because she's saying these like amazingly wise thing as a child, and there's this little kid's piano in the background, so <laughs> it just elicits the mood perfectly. <laughs> Atmospheric conditions, as well as its great distance from the sun, make it highly unlikely that the planet Uranus could sustain any form of life as we know it. I know. I just like saying it. Um, so I want to pivot a bit into uh, how you found the voices for your series. And I understand that it was a bit of a deliberate choice uh, to cast actual kids in the roles for the characters. Why do that? We just again, it was it was about the authenticity. It was about you know this is this is kids making their own show, doing their own thing, and we just did not want to have adults playing kids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, leave that to the Simpsons or whatever. But it was it was challenging. I mean, we we looked and looked and looked for a lot of a lot of the roles, um, and we were casting in Toronto. Um, and I mean, Polly was an interesting case because. <laughs> you know, she's that encyclopedic, she has that encyclopedic vocabulary. And we cast Mariana, who was five at the time, and then realized she can't read. <laughs> and so when we got to read, and she was just so adorable, and she, you know, she had the perfect voice for Polly. Um, and she now has a daughter of her own, by the way. Um, oh. And... Um, then we, you know, got into the recording sessions and, you know, handed her a script and went, oh my. <laughs> and we, you know, we found ourselves, you know, feeding her lines syllable by syllable practically. Um, but she was such a trooper and she was so into it. Um, 
but that was, I mean, that was the depth of the authenticity that we wanted. You know, we wanted Polly played by a five-year-old and the rest of the kids too um, were all age appropriate. I mean, you know, um, you know, the Andrews and, and, you know, the, the, the whole cast was, was actually age appropriate. Mm -hmm. And uh, how did you find uh, Stacy and Bradley's voices? Well, um, Stacy was a challenge. Bradley, Bradley came pretty easily. Mm -hmm. Um, as far as that goes, but Stacy was a challenge because, you know, we of course had, you know, a, a, a long line of, um, girl actresses who were ready for the audition, right. but they had been so imbued with sweetness, I'll call it, you know, that they, they, they were almost stuck in a stereotypical girl role, which of course, Stacy is anything but. And there came a moment, and this is, this is a major confession. Right. And there came a moment where Andrew Craig came in, skinny little blonde kid, boy. Right. And was reading, was reading for Bradley, actually. And finally, I, I, I passed a post-it note. We were in the booth, of course, and I passed a post-it note over to Brian and said, this is Stacy. Mm -hmm. Because he had, he had sort of the right, not effeminate, but girlish quality to his voice, but the delivery was what we needed from Stacy, especially for that first season. Um, yeah. You know, she, she, she was recast by Ashley after, you know, after the first season, but uh, partly because, partly because Andrew's voice changed and he went oh. on, he went on, he went on to play Lance. Oh, okay. In subsequent seasons. Um, but we needed, you know, we needed Stacy to be gritty and, you know, it we, we, we did it. it. It didn't feel good. I'll, I'll, I'll admit that as well, but we needed that for the first season to define the role. We needed to, we needed Stacy to have her own, her own worldview, her own personality, um, you know, that wasn't encumbered by needing to be a girl. Gotcha. For me, you know, some of the most memorable characters in the series are, you know, the, there's the main characters for sure, but there are the secondary characters as well. And uh, three of those I thought I'd highlight are Russell, the uh, really smelly little kid, uh, Polly, who we talked about before, the sort of encyclopedic uh, five-year-old, and uh, Dill. And I was wondering if you could sort of walk me through, you know, how you found the voices, I guess, for Russell and Dill, because we've already talked about Polly a little bit. Well, Russell only has one line, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he only ever says what. Uh-oh, what's that smell? What? And so, you know, we, that, that was, that was kind of a no, a no brainer. Once we found someone, once we found a kid that could, that could, you know, get down in that range, um, and just sound dumb, uh, Russell, Russell was done. Dill, on the other hand, we had, we were at, you know, probably our second or third casting session and Daniel came in skinny little red-haired kid still wearing the bib from the marathon he'd run that morning and we gave him the script you know to read for you know any any kid you know bradley or whatever and out of this kid's mouth came dill it's been a long time play it again for old time's sake again holy mackerel 
fully formed, fully, I mean, at that decibel level, at, in that vocal range, in that level, at that level of intensity. And he couldn't read it any other way. And we, <laughs> we were absolutely in tears in the booth because there was, there was no, there was no controlling it. It was like, you know, you say, okay, let's, 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 let's dial it back a little, you know, and, and, and he would do it exactly the same way. He was just dill. And I remember while he was still in the booth, I got on the phone with Judy Price at CBS mm -hmm. and said, I need you to hear something because we need a new character in the show. <laughs> <laughs> so Daniel basically created Dill in the recording booth at his audition. And the rest is history. You know, he's everybody's favorite yeah. character. I mean, that's certainly an interesting way for a character to sort of be created. <laughs> right, right. And, and it was it was just it was one of the it was one of the highlights of my whole career was realizing this kid had done that at his audition. And uh, he was Dill. Hmm. And, and then Dill became Dill. You know, it was like there, there was there, there, there came a, a depth of character to Dill that then played with that intensity. Because Dill was always pretty right-minded, you know. He was he was one of the good guys. It wasn't like he was this obnoxious kid. Uh, yeah. You know, he just blew everybody's hair back every time he opened every every time he entered a room. He he definitely wasn't a, a Lance or a Russell. He he was a kid with a gold heart. And I and I remember uh, there's one episode where he was talking about how he, all he wants to do in life is become a lawyer because all I do is talk and talk and talk and talk. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was a funny detail for him. Um, I mean, along with the kid characters, there are a bunch of older characters as well. So, I mean, there are, you know, the sticklers and there are, you know, um, the, the, I can't remember his name right now. It's off the, not off the top of my head. The, the older character, the, the older gentleman with the fez. Oh, Mr. Doddler. Uh, Mr. Doddler, um, which, whose name I only only got when I was, yep. I got older. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, there's the, the gym teacher, Mr. Lederhosen, all those characters. I mean, these characters here, I mean, they, they can come from an original place like Dill and just sort of show up and be, you know, just, just pop into existence. But maybe sometimes characters might come from real life. I mean, do any of these characters have a genesis that come from real world experiences or, or people that you knew? Gosh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I'm sure, you know, in some in sub, some, some subconscious sense, of course, I guess all characters do. Yeah, I mean, we had Mr. Lederhosen. You know, where, you know, you're doing 999,999 push-ups and uh, <laughs> all, all of that. I remember for me, it was the rope climb. It was like, no, yeah, please, no. And I just think, you know, Mr. Doddler just offered, a, you know, that generational difference. Mm -hmm. um, we got into a little trouble early on with the network for Mrs. Salazar. Oh. Um, because... She originally was. Um, she lived in the. She lived in the apartments, but she was a, a cleaning lady for right. for um, you know people outside the apartment complex, obviously, and and we realized we we did realize that we had been we'd been terribly glib about that, and so you know we made her we made her a school teacher, and you know it, it just bloom bloomed her character in ways that, you know, all the kids had to respect and gave her, gave her a platform for, you know, 
teaching not only academically but also ethically and everything else. I mean, she became she became a real a real kind of um, floating conscience for the show. Mm. You know, where and Mr. Dodler had his own his own forms of wisdom and um, kind heartedness. I think that's that's the thing that 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 Mr. Dodler imbued the show with mainly was a sense of kindness and, right. and or kind heartedness. Um, you know, any anything could be going wrong and he would sort of see the bright side or or, you know, let somebody off the hook or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it was the the episode where Frank had hidden a sandwich behind the behind the TV. And, you know, it was there was that funky smell in, in Stella's apartment. <laughs> And Mr. Dodler showed up and everybody's going on and on about the, the, the smell in the apartment. And Mr. Dodler just says, well, Mrs. Stickler, it is a little close in here. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it was just that, you know, that was his, he, he was so gentle and so gentle. Yeah. You know, and he came, he came from a, from a, a generation with a different, a different approach to interacting with people. What's with all the hollering? Mr. Dodler, there's a Monster, huh? Well, back in my day, we had monsters, too. Real monsters, not the wimpy kind you have nowadays. You had to be on your guard at all times. And again, the kids the kids completely respected him, you know, and, and had you know, nothing but affection for him. You know, speaking of some of the more, you know, adult characters in the show, uh, one of the major details of Stacy's family is that her parents are actually divorced. Um, they're no longer together and they, I believe they live in separate, um, locations as well. So why was that, uh, part of her story? Well, it, it was kind of a holdover from, from the, 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 uh, show that Brian and Barbara Corday were working on. Um, mm -hmm. it seemed worth, worth keeping as a core, as a core principle. One of the things that we were, that, that, that we originally considered, um, before we, we went to the apartment complex where we could include a bunch of other kids, um, was that Stanley and Stella were divorced but couldn't afford to move out, which would probably be more germane now than it even was then, um, but that they were living at opposite ends of the house. And so every other week, Stacy would pack up her stuff and move to her mom's end of the house, and then the next week she'd pack up her stuff and move to her dad's end of the house. Um, and you know that had that had a lot of its own sort of fun dynamic tension in and of itself, but when we moved it into the apartments and Stanley, you know, I mean Stanley's living in the caretakers' quarters of the of the apartment complex, where you know Stella got the apartment, um, partly because what being the caretaker of the apartment complex gave Stanley was an excuse to hang around Stella's place. Okay. Uh, he 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 still had that unrequited, you know, maybe going on, mm -hmm. and you know would come over and fix things that didn't need fixing, and and you know be a, a, a total pest. And you know Stella had had you know the best eye roll in the world. <laughs> yeah, you think Stan might have a better eye roll, get, just given the size of his one eye. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, it's so... the good. Yeah, something I wanted to bring up was there's a, a web show called Cracked After Hours, uh, which examined uh, pop culture, and they had an episode called Why Every 80s Sitcom Decided to Kill Off the Mom. 
And um, Daniel O'Brien, who's one of the, the, the hosts on that show, discovers a bit of a phenomenon in the 80s, you know, as to why, you know, divorce became sort of a, a running theme in television. So he said, uh, in the 1980s, a lot of states started enacting the no-fault divorce rule, and suddenly people started getting divorced because they wanted to. And by 1985, divorce rates had nearly doubled. So, I mean, divorce was a bit of a running theme in 80s and 90s sitcoms. Uh, what do you think sticking around, you know, contributed to the dialogue around that by including these two characters in the show? Well, again, you know, I think, I think you know, it, it goes back to the idea that kids play the hand that's dealt them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we named the apartment complex the latchkey. You know, I think that there was there 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 is a generation that's a product of divorce these days. You know, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of I think particularly guys who hitched up in the 1960s and even the 70s um, showed up for the sex and drugs and rock and roll. And you know, when it came to actually having to be grown up men, uh, that didn't work out as well. And I think that. Yeah, there is there is a generation of kids who've had to deal with the stigma, the I think oftentimes self-imposed guilt and shame, you know, thinking it's their fault, um, and and that sense of that sense of instability, that sense of you know your whole world can just rock at a, at, at some point and you have no control of it, um, and I think that it is it is important for generationally i think that there there's a reason that it happened in those years in in um media um there is a there is a lot to discuss there and there's a lot to account for in a particular in a particular generation of kids gotcha so I want to pivot into something uh, a little bit different than what we've been talking about and just talk about the show's animation style and its look. Um, we had sort of mentioned earlier things about, you know, stick figure theater on M- on MTV. And um, but I was wondering, you know, with this sort of style of animation that you went with using stick figures where, you know, they don't have you know, necessarily a, f- a fully defined face, you know, as an animator yourself, does that put, uh, give you more freedom to make your characters more expressive or does that put uh, constraints on you? Well, there's, there's an illusion of simplicity in, mm-hmm. in, in the stick figure animation. Um, it still has to be on model. You st- you're still beholden to all the same principles and design uh, principles as you are in any any other form of, of animation. Um, you know, sure, there are there are liberties that you can take in, in, in with with this design style that you can't with a Disney character or something. Right. But um, you know, it 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 actually it actually I, I'll I'll say that you know it it wasn't that much different from almost any other animation job I I had ever worked on. In the in those terms, you know, you still have to, you're still beholden to the to the model sheets and the show bible, and but the original aesthetic was always there, which was that you know the living room, say say the living room in Stella's apartment, was, you know, you, um, you cut a sofa out of the the 
the um, Sears catalog, slap it down on a, on a, a, a spattery background, and that's a living room, you know? There was kind of an, ele an elevation of simplicity, if you will, in terms of the look of the show. And then, because the animation was done digitally, which was early days of that, by the way, it was, it was early yeah. of actually creating the animation digitally, not just, not just post-production or whatever. And we, um, we worked with the software company to create the, the, I remember what they called it, Boilomation or whatever it was. For I think the, it was called the, Boiler Paint? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, we had them up at, you know, two, three in the morning, many, many nights trying to figure out how to automate the paint color, not strictly adhering to the, to the, the, the lines of the characters, but basically coloring, getting the computer to color outside the lines. Hmm. And that was a really important part of it to me because I, you know, I just, I didn't want it to just be a click fill, a click fill look. Yeah. You know, that, that had to do with, again it had to do with having the kids create it yeah having it come from the, the hand of a child kind of hitting the original brief and stuff a bit right exactly yeah gotcha i mean uh, yeah nelvana's website mentions boiler paint as, as something that was used on the show and, and it's it's highlighted as something that was a, a bit revolutionary at the time but I mean, how was using sort of a digital workflow at that time different when it came in, in comparison to sort of maybe more traditional practices? Oh, it was a complete overhaul for me. I had only ever I had only ever worked on paper, right? Uh, you know, and this was this was when there was there were you know early on there was a, there was a program called Painter, where and it was it was basically a a drawing program. It wasn't an animation program per se. Hmm. Um, and I think if I'm not mistaken, I think the program that we used for animation ended up becoming Toon Boom over, over the years. Uh, but Painter, <laughs> and it was funny, Painter originally in those days, it was, I, I mean, we had Painter 1.0. Okay. And it, it actually came in a one gallon paint can. Oh, okay. The, the 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 floppy disk, you know. <laughs> oh, that's pretty on brand, I guess. Exactly right. <laughs> uh, it seems incredibly wasteful now, but but uh, it was a complete revolution for me. I had to completely learn how to draw with a, a Wacom tablet and a monitor, mm -hmm. but it was it was life changing, and I think that you know we're we're pleased, if not proud, to have been sort of at the forefront of yeah how that how that kind of production worked i guess that's, that's such an interesting thing because you know everything about the show's aesthetic screams that it's something that is done i mean to to a kid you would think it was done on pencil and paper and then drawn in yeah but like it's the exact opposite where you know sticking around was yeah at the forefront of a new technology well i you know i i hope we broke i hope we broke some barriers um, so again, pivoting into something entirely different, uh, I kind of feel like that, that, uh, Monty Python sketch right now. <laughs> <laughs> and now for something completely different. Um, going into sort of the, the final stretch here, I mean, what do you think, uh, as the, as you know, the co-creator of the show, what do you think the legacy is of sticking around? 
there's nothing like hearing, seeing, reading that how, how much it meant to someone as a kid in their childhoods. There what there used to mm-hmm. be Facebook took it down, but there used to be a fan page on Facebook that had thirty nine thousand subscribers. Right. And if I ever needed a pickup for my own self, <laughs> I could just read through the threads and just and just hear what it meant what it meant to kids um, and how it actually extends into in, into who people became. I think that's it. And, and there again, it goes back it goes back to having an ethos in the show that is to lead by example. You know, that, that no matter how weird things get, no matter how messed up your life may be as a kid, you're going to get through this and you, you can do it with grace and ethics and kindness and fun. And if, if, if it affected that many people, I'm, I'm good, you know, the, 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 old, the old axiom of, you know, if, if I can just, you know, make one person's life better, but that fan page was amazing. <laughs> and it was really, really gratifying to yeah. know that it really touched people's hearts and minds in as much as a cartoon show can. I mean, I think it took me a long time to figure out why I do what I do. Because at the end of, at the, end of the day, it, it all just seemed so insignificant. It all seemed so ephemeral. And, and, you know, I'm not curing cancer. I'm not going to the moon or anything. But in the end, what I ended up realizing was that storytelling was one of the first things that actually made us human. And I think that there's, that, that, that being a steward, a custodian of that tradition and of that part of humanity really might matter in the end. And I think that's, that's what I hope the legacy of sticking around is that that people came away better people right for having watched it um as a final sort of thought is that you know um there are a lot of shows that have recently made a, a bit of a comeback um thinking of shows like invader zim and you know others like um uh, shira shows like that and i understand that you own the intellectual property rights to the show along with your co-creator um I mean, I, I, I've asked this of a few creators who I've talked to about like whether or not their show could come back. Um, I guess the question is, is, is not to put any pressure on, on anyone because I'm not going to say, <laughs> are you going to bring it back? But if a show like this was to come back, what does a person need to get it to sort of become a, an hour long special or something or, or that? What do you need to make that sort of thing happen? Boy, that's a tough road to hoe. You know, I know mm. that they're, I'm trying to remember whether they're coming back with, um, well, Mike, Mike Judge is bringing back Beavis and Butthead. Yeah. Um, with Netflix. Or, and, and, and Danny, actually, Danny Ananucci is bringing back Ed, Ed, and Eddie with, with Netflix. But, boy, I mean, I've, I've seen all those guys beat their heads against walls to the point, to the point where they, they kind of gave up as far as that goes. And, and, they, and then good things happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I know that, like you know, Joe Murray got the Rocco the Rocco special done finally, and 
after after you know I think he had some difficulty with Nickelodeon over the years, and it's exhausting. It's really exhausting, and I think that I think that there also has to be a level of demand. Mm-hmm. And I don't know for sure that sticking around would have that as, as, as endeared as people are to it and as loyal as people have been to it. I don't know. It'd be interesting to, it'd be interesting to explore. I'll just say that, mm-hmm. but that's a rough road to hoe getting, getting something like that set up. Well, I mean, as soon as the uh, Mr. TV podcast makes it big, and yeah. I start rolling in the dough and raking in millions. I'm gonna gonna finance the show entirely myself. Hope springs eternal. <laughs> How's that as a plan? <laughs> there we go. Anyway, uh, well, Robin Steele, this has been a real pleasure speaking with you about sticking around, uh, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to stay tuned for our next episode. Until then, stay home, be a couch potato, and stay safe.